0: Welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast, where we interview scientists, philosophers, and leading thinkers to discuss the nature of our reality and the impact it has on our daily lives.
1: Dr. Eric Pepper is a Harvard-educated psychophysiology professor at San Francisco State. He has a private practice in biofeedback, is an international authority on the mind-body connection, has innumerable awards and is a prolific writer. In today's episode, we talk about how the limits of your beliefs are the limits of your reality, the evolutionary causes for feeling guilty about our reactions to traumatic experiences, the importance of role rehearsal visualization in our well being and success and the three steps to shifting your perspective around a stressful or shameful experience. And with that, let's jump in. Hi, Dr. Pepper, thank you so much for being here today.
0: Well, thank you, Susanna, it's such a pleasure.
1: Well, we're excited to have you. And just to let every all of our listeners know, I first discovered Dr. Pepper at a biofeedback conference uh, recently and was really taken aback by everything that he shared and his wisdom and and enthusiasm and really wanted him to be here so um, that's the context now again just to give some information uh, you are a professor at san francisco state university of holistic health correct is that right a director of biofeedback in berkeley and you also have your own private practice
0: that's a practice correct and i also run a you know i have a blog that is published every so often so some of the concepts can also be found in my blog called PepperPerspective.com.
1: Great. Perfect. Now, if you don't mind, for, for our listeners who don't know what biofeedback is, do you mind telling us a little bit about that?
0: No, gladly. What is biofeedback? But feedback, basically, is any information that occurs that tells you how you're doing. So when we, you know, many people have had the experience maybe trying to wiggle their ear, you know, when you're a little kid and what you do is you stand in the bathroom mirror, you look at the mirror, you try to wiggle your ear and you see if you're doing it or not. Mm-hmm. That is kind of, and the mirror then gives you the visual feedback or another way of feedback, if you're playing basketball and you're, you're trying to get the, the ball through the hoop and then you realize you missed, you adjust, you, and each time you see that you miss the visual input, you see, you adjust your motor movement so finally you can do it. That's the learning process. What biofeedback is, is basically the similar process, except you're now monitoring from the body what is happening inside. For example, you may not be aware that as you sit at the computer, your shoulders are slightly up. All you're aware of is later, at the end of the day, you feel stiff and maybe have a little bit of pain. If you could now monitor somehow the muscle tension, which you can do with, you know, small devices, you put them on the skin, it would measure the electrical activity produced when the muscle fibers contract, it would amplify that. It could show you on the screen. It could make it in sounds or whatever. And then you could see, gosh, my muscles are tightening. And then maybe I can do something to let it go. It really makes the invisible visible, the unfelt, the demonstrable, the undocumented documented. And with this, you can literally monitor muscle tension, which we're so often unaware of. So many, we clench our Teeth, our jaw, our teeth the whole day, we set our teeth on edge, we don't know it till we have the pain radiating upward. If I could be aware that I'm starting to do this, then I could interrupt, or similarly with breathing patterns. You know, so often we are holding our breath, we don't know it, we just gave a startle response. You know, even if you, for let me give an example, okay? If you are sitting here and now I'm gonna ask you very quickly, to look to the extreme right and then to the extreme left. Are you ready to do that? Every time I'm gonna snap my finger. With each snap, look to the extreme right and then to the left. Snap, 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 snap. Are you holding your breath this whole time? Yep. Notice you were unaware. Now, if I had put a strain gauge around you or possibly measured your heart rate, we could see that while you were doing this task, your breathing pattern changed, your heart rate changed. And with training then you could learn to maybe keep breathing. You could let your heart rate go in its own rhythm or whatever. And so biofeedback just monitors what is going on. Then the second part would be biofeedback training. The training is where you use this information to try to do control. For example, I was working with somebody this morning. The person is really very anxious. So, and she breathes then rapidly in her chest. She doesn't know it really is totally unaware. Then what we do is we we monitor this by putting a band around her chest and one around her stomach. We have her sit comfortably and we say, okay, relax. And when she thinks she is relaxed, she's breathing 18, 20 times a minute. Now what we do is we say, okay, now see if you can breathe lower. That means when she inhales, her stomach becomes bigger. Just like when you look like a little baby. You know, when you look at a baby, when they inhale, the stomach is bigger. When they exhale, the stomach gets smaller. So we do that. We work with that. She can do that. And then she reports, she feels so much more relaxed. Then we have her do the old pattern of breathing, even a little more exaggerated. And all of a sudden, she starts to trigger her own panic attack. Then she stops. She looks back on the screen and breathes slower. And after a while, you can learn to do this without using the equipment. That's the key.
1: Ah, so it's essentially training yourself to use your body to manage stress and anxiety
0: yes it can be multiple things it can be one biofeedback can be used as a physiological mirror to show what's going on when things are going on for example you could be sitting and now you could think of some stress you don't know you know you think of something stressful and then you can observe oh my physiology totally changed i never realized that So now you can use that also to say, maybe I want to change how I think. For others, biofeedback is a very big field. And so it's unfair to just define one little segment. For example, in in rehabilitation medicine with patients who may have had a stroke and their arm is slightly contracted or they have a dropped foot. So when they're walking, they can't quite lift the toes. Biofeedback can sometimes be remarkably helpful because sometimes these muscles aren't totally paralyzed. They just feel paralyzed. They don't, are not strong enough to lift, the jo- to move the joint. Now, when you monitor from that muscle, you may see a little bit of activity. The person thinks it's paralyzed. Now, when they see it on the screen, there's activity. Now they work and work and try to make that s- signal bigger and bigger. F- it's as if they're exercising that small part of the muscle enough, it becomes strong enough and they may no longer have a, f- a drop foot, foot drop.
1: And that is really remarkable. Yeah. And it goes back to something that you talk a lot about, which is this idea of the power of your belief is only as you're, what you experience in life is only as much as you believe.
0: Yes. I think that like, the concept you're really saying is that so many of us, our mental images form the limits of our belief. So we want, or we get a label, I'm dumb. Therefore, I cannot learn. And that is circular because the moment you think you can't, cannot do something, you probably get scared or you already give up before trying. So if you give up right away, it's hopeless. You won't ever master. And I see this in a funny way with many of my students. It's really circular. You know, when I run a class, which is a biofeedback lab, in which students use equipment, you know, people often pair up. One person is very equipment savvy, computer savvy, and the other one isn't. Who operates the equipment? The computer savvy person. Because the person who is not computer savvy, when they get to the computer, they feel a little bit intimidated. When you feel intimidated, you become fearful. When you become fearful, in a way you're activating your amygdala, which really gives you that fight flight response, and it's really a very early primitive response. And it still reacts as if that situation going to the computer, oops, it's like 40,000 years ago, there's a saber-toothed tiger at the distance. At that moment, I freeze, I can't think anymore, and I'm only trying to survive at the moment. Essentially, my amygdala deep in my brain gets activated, my cortex gets basically shut off, and I can no longer do future thinking or much past thinking and I'm only in the present of terror or fear and no wonder I can't operate the equipment if on the other hand I can say well I've never done it so I make a mistake I break the equipment they won't break it anyway I make a mistake I do it then eventually you realize you can have mastery so it's that for most people their own limits their limits of the belief puts a boundary up that says it is impossible either they they already defeatedly give up or they get so terrified that they it's almost impossible to learn now once you see that process it's possible to change
1: so what happens at that moment i mean to use that example what happens at that what happens at that moment where you have two paths you can take right it's i can freeze and give up or i can try and know that failure mistakes are expected and accepted.
0: What can you really do?
1: Yeah, what, we're, what can we implement within ourselves at that moment where you choose one path or the other?
0: The first step is probably in a way to acknowledge you feel this way. I'm terrified. The, that already pulls the brain out of the situation as the observer. And I am terrified. And see if you can do that without judgment. Or you can say to yourself, because of my past, my genetics, my family upbringing, my, my school, my lousy fifth grade teacher, I don't care what it is. Whatever those could, I reacted this moment just as I should have reacted. Notice, I could not react any better than I did. At that moment I react, I stop. I take a very slow breath. And when I take a slow breath, I let my stomach expand upon the inhalation. And then as I exhale, I slowly let the air go out. Then I, and my stomach gets smaller. Then as I inhale, let my stomach get bigger again. And so when I relax my stomach that way, I also are stopping my fearful body posture. I also start shifting posture. So instead of sitting in the defense posture, where I cross my legs, put my knees together, almost curl forward to protect myself. At this moment, totally, Counterintuitively, I do the opposite. I'm gonna sit back. I'm gonna expose myself in a way. I'm gonna occupy more space. I'm gonna let my knees be slightly apart. I'm gonna lean back at my shoulders. And then if I, let, I inhale in my stomach once or twice and all I say to myself, who knows what the future brings? The key is not that I cannot do it. That is language. The key probably is when I say I can't do it, I may, there are really different choices what I can say. I often say I cannot do it because it is, I, I don't think what I'm doing is allowed. Often it's much better to ask for forgiveness than for permission anyway.
1: Yep, it is.
0: <laughs> so just do it. <laughs> Two, often we say I can't because I'm afraid. So instead of saying, I can't say at this moment of time, I haven't mastered all the skills yet. At this moment of time, I still need coaching or tutoring. If I can take that pause and then almost fake a smile, sit back, open my space, two things happen what happens. One, the panic decreases that lets my frontal cortex re work again, second, when I move into that defense reaction, which I did at that moment where I protected myself, where I made myself almost powerless and defeated, I made myself smaller. If I stay in that position for two minutes versus sitting in the opposite position for two minutes, where I expand and fake being looking powerful, that means I am occupying more space, I'm erect, my knees are apart, within two minutes, I get a massive change in testosterone and cortisol. Literally, if you collapse for two minutes compared to the position of sitting up, there's almost a 40% difference in testosterone, often hormone-associative power. So when you are collapsed, your testosterone goes down. If you're sitting up and erect and powerful, your testosterone goes up, and at the same time, Your stress hormone, cortisol, shifts as well. When I'm in a collapse position, when I make that statement, oh my God, I can't do this. At that moment, cortisol starts going up. My heart rate often goes up. I perspire more. If, on the other hand, I sit back and assemble the posture of power, my cortisol goes down and I can do more lucid thinking. Just change the position. It's one of the easiest ways to do it. So next time you get to that situation, stop. Acknowledge, I'm terrified. Take a breath. Fake your position of power. (laughs) Breathe lower. And at best say at this moment of time, I'm terrified. Notice what I've done. I've changed our internal language from a forever statement. I can't do this but I mean, I could not do it in the past, I cannot do it in the present, and I will not be able to do it in the future to saying, at this moment of time, I have more difficulty doing it than other people. That allows change. And the more I start thinking that way, the more do I have options. Ask yourself, not, I can't do it, ask yourself, What do I need to do to master it? Let me do it in an example about um, basketball. I'm standing, or or uh, probably a better one would be golf, right? I take golf, I'm trying to putt something, I miss it all the time, what do I do? Do I say I'm stupid? No, I say I don't know how to do it. I hire a, a coach and they give me some suggestions and then I work on it. They're just giving me feedback. And they give me skill acquisition so I can perform better. Did that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does make sense. It makes me think of um, Carol Dweck's work of uh, fixed mindset versus growth mindset. Correct. Right? Where where this is the fixed mindset is uh, this is how I am and this is how I always be versus exactly. I think that was so powerful when you say at this moment in time.
0: Yes, and often the other question you can do, which we have done as a practice, which I highly recommend for people, when something happens and you didn't do what you want to do, you often feel guilty about it. Does that make sense? Yes. And it can be as simple as it can be working at the computer. I'm trying to operate Excel. It can be uh, I just went to a party. I drank too much. I came home and I am pissed off at myself the next day that I was drunk. And then you say, shit, I mean, I apologize on the <laughs> blank. Uh, I should not have drank that much or I shouldn't have picked out that much. Remember, every time you rehearse that, I should not have done that, you are strengthening that same behavior. Our brain in reality does not understand not. In order when I say, I should not have done something, you first have to rehearse doing that failure behavior. And then you put a cross through it. Let me, and I'm gonna come back to this. This is easily done as an experiment if you have a little child. So you have a three-year-old child. I do. Great, okay. Susanna. <laughs> yes. Now what you do is you sit on the couch and you have a carpet in your house also? Yes. What color is it? Uh, tan. Okay, that's good enough. Now give, give your son or daughter. Daughter. Give your daughter a nice cup of hot chocolate almost filled to the top. Okay. You sit on the couch. She is across the carpet and have her deliver this to you. Oh, God. <laughs> and halfway through, she's walking across, say, don't spill it. Mm. At that moment, you'll see the arms go spilling. Yeah. If, on the other hand, you would say, gosh, you're doing this great. Look how smooth and steady you're walking. It most likely will not spill because our brains go to the, whatever the image is we are aiming toward. Okay, now how can you use this as a practice? Is that, so as a practice now, when you have said to yourself, I should not have done that. You may even tell all your friends, you know, I yelled at my my partner last night. Damn, I was so stupid. And you recite the same story time and time again. Okay, instead what you wanna say is it happened. You may wanna explain it once, try to understand the the emotions that were generated about that, how it impacted you thereafter. All you say to yourself, it happened, because that's the only thing I could have done at that moment. Given your past, given your conditioning, at that moment, those were the only resources available you had to perform just as you did. That's what I acknowledge. And then I say to myself, given the wisdom I have now, how would I have done it differently, okay? And then I look at that, I figure out ways to do it different, how I could have done it differently. Then rehearse this new way of doing. Really rehearse it in your mindset. See yourself doing it the new way many times. And then when a friend of you asks you about that event, and you know, they say, gosh, I heard there was a real, you had some problems there. You just say, yes, it happened. And let me tell you now the new way of how I now would do it. Notice you don't rehearse the failure again. You acknowledge it happened and this is the new way of doing it. It is a great exercise if you do this in groups. When we do this with students, we see a couple couple of things. One, they procrastinate much less. Most interesting. Students often say, well, you know, they feel guilty for not having done the homework, right? Or something or they picked out, they report after two weeks compared to a control group who doesn't do it, their procrastination goes down, their productivity goes up significantly, and their energy level goes up significantly. Just by using this intervention. Most interesting.
1: Mm, that is, so you see the effects in your life and in every area by yes, doing this you, shift.
0: Yes. It's not that you just do it once and thereafter, you forget about it. It's the concept that each, almost each time you say, I should not have done that. Well, you did. You should have done it because you did it.
1: Right, right.
0: <laughs> I trust you are a good person, that you have a nice heart. You're not evil. At that moment, those are the only resources you have. So you did it. Now, given the wisdom rehearse how you would do it. Okay, sorry. You asked me a yeah, question. Yeah, no.
1: Uh, one, of the, one of the things you said is that your, our brain does not understand not. Correct. Could you talk to us a bit more about that?
0: Okay. In order to say something like, I should not do that, you first have to visualize and mentally rehearse the failure. And then you put a cross through it. At best, what you're saying is that's bad, but you're not giving the brain a new pattern where to go. So you're not giving the person the image to where they want to go. And we really, what we will become is what we really can imagine. really our beliefs. If you have a very strong goal, it's easier to achieve. Because then if I know where I want to go, then all the time when something else goes up, I can say, wait a minute, no, that is not the right thing. I want to go there. So then we can make clear judgments. It's all done covertly. And you can see how subtle the brain is. Let's say you decide you want to go to um, New Zealand on vacation. Okay. I'll bet you if that, if once you're very clear, all of a sudden it seems that every website you go to, every newspaper article, every friend you talk to, they seem to be talking about New Zealand. Because our brain is now selectively set to start picking up information for that. In the past, the same people may have said New Zealand, it was just never stored. So we are moving toward that. Let me point out, the classic example I do for for trying to show how powerful imagery is is the simple lemon experiment. You have all done that proudly. Remember, you sit quietly. If you have done it, but I'll, do, I'll guide you through.
1: No, Just I don't. I don't remember it. So go. Yeah.
0: Okay. Just sit quietly. Let yourself relax for a moment. You can tighten all your muscles for a moment. Take a deep breath, and then let it all go. Now, just let yourself relax, let your eyes be closed. And then in a moment, I'm going to guide you through an imagery. We all image and visualize in different ways. Some in living color, some in kind of black and white, some it's more words. Whatever is your style is your style. Now, what I'd like you to imagine is a big lemon. You know, these big yellow lemons, the skin is almost dimpled. It's shiny, the two chubby ends. Now, I'd like you to go to your kitchen in your imagination. Get a cutting board. Put this big lemon on the cutting board. And with your dominant hand, i like you to hold, get a knife. Hold the handle of the knife. Now, I'd like you to cut the lemon in half. And as you're cutting it, feel the tension in your forearm. Feel the droplets of lemon juice splattering against your skin. After you've cut the lemon in half, put the knife to the side. Now, pick up one and a half lemons and look at them. Look at the outer yellow rind, the white, palish white yellow inner rind, the half cut pits, the droplets of lemon juice glistening in the light. Now I'd like you to get a glass and with this half lemon in your hand, really squeeze this half lemon so the juice goes into the glass. I know it'll splatter against your skin and maybe even on the tabletop, but really squeeze it. Feel the tension in your hands, the forearm. You may be holding your breath doing this. And after you squeeze this half lemon, put it to the side. Pick up the other half lemon. Really squeeze it and squeeze it and squeeze it. Get the juice going into the glass. You may even move it around. Now put the half lemon to the side. Now I like you take the glass in your hand. Gently lift it up and bring the rim to the glass, to your lower lip. Let it rest against your lower lip. Feel the coolness of the rim of the lower of the glass. Now gently tilt the glass. Feel the lemon juice against your lips. Now open your lips and mouth. Tilt the glass more. Now pour the lemon juice into your mouth. And now drink and swallow the lemon juice. You can spit out the pits. Okay, good enough. Did you, and what happened? Did you get an increase in saliva?
1: Increase in saliva? My mouth, I could feel it in my the-
0: Puckering almost. Puckering the my side, of my, the side a...
1: of my tongue. Yes. Yeah. And my, my face tightened. Yes. Yeah.
0: Notice it is an image what you were doing. Your body responded. If I have an image where I want to go, it is the same way. My body will start moving toward it. My thoughts will start moving toward it. So the key is to acknowledge the past, accept it ha- happened. That is acceptance, not resignation too. I accept, not easy, it takes a while. And then focus your energy where you wanna be, what you wanna do. Even if it's not attainable at this moment, you wanna make a goal and then once you have that goal, then it, then it becomes your problem solving, it's simple. What do I need to learn to master to get to that goal?
1: Simple set
0: it's challenging
1: and that thank you for giving that image so we could experience it um, and to show show the, the actual the physical power behind that um so in that moment when you <clears throat> when you have this goal in mind and as we talked about the more you sort of expand your boundaries of of your existence right the more vulnerable and unknown because you don't know what. You know, if you stay within your sphere that you always have been... It's safe. It's safe, right? Because you know this, you know what. You know the, the mountain lions that exist there. You go beyond into the next sphere and it's very unsafe. In what way um, do we allow our system to calm down? Is that where we go back to what you talked about before, the acknowledgement, the breath, the physical... I would say yeah.
0: there, there are two or three paths one is to first acknowledge it's normal to feel scared scaredness can also be called excitement sometimes it's very normal and biologically we're wired essentially that novelty is often dangerous Mm. you know in in a very nice way not what i mean is that if you think back not as we are today but as we were 40,000 years ago, or for a million years or more, living in small tribes, we were prey. Mm-hmm. And if we're prey, then danger is around me. When I see another tribe coming at me, most likely they're not going to be friendly. So every time I enter novelty, I'm going to be on guard. I'm get my, my, it has nothing to do with you. That's the biology. I'm going to be more ready to give a, fi- a defense reaction. And at that moment to the defense reaction, when something comes, I get scared, I freeze for a moment. I get quiet because if I freeze, the saber-toothed tiger doesn't see me. It's just like when you go to an airport, you're trying to identify a friend, then you stand up and you wave your arms really big. And when you do that, they can see you. But if you don't move at all, it's harder to see you. That's purely biological, you freeze. So the, the key in this part is one, to acknowledge, it's scary. Then you have to ask the simple questions, is it life threatening? Can I get really hurt? Am I willing to live with the risks? What are my risks? Many of the risks we have are totally, we are very poor in our modern world to identify risk. You know, I was just telling that to my class. You know, we think of risk, you know, many people are afraid of flying, it's fearful yet the risk of driving to the airport is a hundred times more dangerous in the United States the risks of be of dying in an airplane crash is thousands of times less than the risk of being murdered hmm. by violence
1: hmm.
0: does that make, I mean it's a funny way of thinking it is okay or if you look at the risk of dying you remember the risk of having getting a medical mistake and dying from it in a hospital, it's the third cause of death in the United States, most likely. You know, we don't think of it that way. So we don't quite know how to assess risk in novelty. So you have to ask, and when you think of risk, there are multiple. One is personal safety. Is your personal safety, is somebody gonna attack you? If that's not the case, okay, stop. We're playing an intellectual game, a list almost, it helps. Two, what skills do I need? Sometimes you don't have the skills yet. So maybe you need to say, I wanna be there, but I need to learn another set of skills. I may need to ask a colleague, hey, how do I communicate in that setting? Three, it may in fact, not. this is not applicable to you, but it's applicable to your children. Overall, I would argue that the more fear as adults we have as novelty, more likely we did not have good attachment in childhood. So think about little babies when they're born. Not in today's society, but in early society. How How, what happened? They were born, then they were clamped, then the mother held them almost all the time for the first two years. They slept with the baby. Probably they slept together till age five or six, or seven, or eight. They weren't afraid of the dark. It didn't even exist. In the United States and much of the Western world, most kids, young babies are afraid of the dark. How come? Well, because we take a little baby who, from a biological perspective, an evolutionary perspective, should have been bonded and almost be in constant touch with the mom. Then it can run away for a moment. Then it comes back. The mom is still there. When the mom is not there at night, I'll be terrified. So we put the artificial light on. And that, in fact, makes it worse. So for little children, for parents, by providing that early, really attachment safety, those kids seem more attached in the beginning. But then once they become adults, it's remarkable. They have a sense of core safety. So then when they go into novelty, they know that the universe is a friendly place. Mm,
1: Which goes back to belief.
0: Yes, it's not a belief. It's a felt sense. Mm. There's belief and knowing are two different things. Let me give an example. You know, as a mom, you have a daughter. And as a little baby, your daughter, you know, used used her diapers, right? Mm -hmm. And And if you look at each trial debate, your daughter went through learning urinary and fecal control, right? Bowel movement control. She did hundreds of trials, right? She probably had 10 diapers a day sometimes. Yep. And then maybe for a year or two years. And if it's boys, some is still age four or five.
1: That was <laughs> right? for my son, yes.
0: <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> I, I, you know, just, just for ease, make it 10 a day. That's 3,500 trials a year for make it two, make it two years, right? That's 7,000. And in three years, more than 10,000 failure trials. Am I correct? Yes. How come you didn't give up? How come you still believed that your daughter and your son who, who took longer could still do it? I knew. How come you had the experience? You had the felt experience. So for you, it was never a belief. You knew, you had the mental projection, that mental image which you superimposed upon your son in some ways, knowing he could do it. There was never a doubt in your mind. Mm. Belief is something where you think you can do it and you're doubtful. And so the question if both of these if your son and daughter, the question was not could they do it. The question just f- was figuring out a way by which they would master become masterful. Did that make it? that's a crazy way of thinking.
1: No, it is, and it goes it goes exactly back to at this moment in time. Yes. Right. I, I cannot do it.
0: But it doesn't. At this moment in time, does not project what I will do tomorrow. Yeah. Or in five minutes. All it says at this moment, I have not yet mastered this skill. What skills do I need to learn? What other advice do I need to integrate? What experience do I need to integrate so I can move up the ladder? And I'm willing to look at very small changes of benefit. And what is so interesting, and I I just finished my semester almost with my students, they all do self-healing projects for four for five weeks. So they range from having acne and their acne disappears to someone who had, had panic attacks and their panic attacks disappear to people who have almost like celiac disease and have, you know, they start doing these little practices and then what they do, they plot the data day by day by day. And then they can see their own patterns when they look back. And so often if you really record every day what you're doing and then you reflect on it, you can say, gosh, every Sunday I had my treat day. That was one of the students. And she would treat herself with food. All the rest of the week, she was good, mm-hmm. and she really became better. Her 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 GI distress significantly went down on the average. Very successful. But when you looked at the individual dates, every week on her treat day, she felt worse. Hmm. That's when she picked out on her ice cream or the food she shouldn't have had. It was only by looking at that pattern did she finally see the pattern. And then the question is, how can I treat myself differently?
1: Which goes back to the knowing, right? That's yes, so right. If I've seen the experience. I've seen the experience. I've seen me right. shift. Yeah.
0: So that's sort of the intriguing parts. If I if I want to think about all of this, then I think I take an evolutionary perspective, and I would recommend people to think of that. That much of how we behave, how we respond, is embedded in our evolutionary past. This can be the diet. We are so and we are so far removed from our past. You know, by, by being respectful to that past and trying to incor- making respect and incorporate into our well-being, we do better. Maybe I should give an example and a really strange example. Okay. And this comes from the work by Stephen Porges and myself. He wrote an article on the, the very difficult experience that often occurs in date rape with students or anybody who has been traumatized, have been mugged. Sometimes in those, in those experiences, what happens is that you, somebody you get mugged, at that moment you fr- totally freeze. You become immobilized. And then when the, even when it is a situation where you could have screamed or run away, okay? Afterwards, you not only feel bad that you were mugged or you were you're allowed to rape almost to continue, you really feel guilty that you did not fight, that you didn't run away. You blame yourself incessantly. And then often you don't even share that because you're so ashamed of it, so it becomes a hidden secret. And it's the hidden secret which is so harmful because that puts this glass boundary between you and other people, this wall. Now what is so interesting is that if you start understanding the bio- biology, you realize it isn't that the person wants to be mugged or want to be raped. That has nothing to do with it. What happened is that at that moment, when that event happened, the person, when the rapist or the, your date rape almost, you know, overpowered you, or when it, you got mugged, at that moment, the brain does neuroception, as it is called. Our brain continually decides, is the world safe? Is the world dangerous or life-threatening? If the world is safe, it allows us to talk to each other like we're doing now. If the world is dangerous, then you mobilize your muscle system, your adrenal response, you give the classical Hans Selye kind of response, you get this fight-flight response, you you activate, your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up, you're getting ready to run away or fight. On the other hand, if the the neuroception says, this is life-threatening, it does the total opposite. It no longer activates that more modern stress response, It's our old Vegas, that one that's, the leftover in us from our reptilian times takes over. That lets us go into death fainting. It's a withdrawal response. We in fact, our heart rate starts slowing. We cannot act, we cannot speak. We become limp, almost. It is the only survival you can have against an overwhelming force. So if think of being a reptile, if another animal comes near, what does it do? It dives in the water, it shuts down its metabolism, it has a very small brain anyway, and so it can stay on the water for maybe four hours. And we have that primitive response wired into us. You can check it, put your head in iced water, your heart rate will often slow slow down. That's called a diving reflex still. It is death system is activated. You didn't voluntarily activate it, it took over. You became totally paralyzed. You shut down. Now this really works well if, you, if a brown bear attacks you in the Sierras, grabs onto you. If that happens, the bear, the big bear or a grizzly bear, he or she, the, the bear will win. You can't do anything. If at that moment, you your body responds not by fighting, but by saying, interpreting this, this is totally life-threatening, it gives this death-fainting response. It just becomes basically slack and paralyzed. Then you become like a raggedy and doll. And the bear may not become interested in you anymore. It may drop you. It, it may allow you to survive. Just like when you see a cat play with a mouse. When the mouse is in the... Cat's mouth, it is totally limp. We do the same response. So what happens is during, during the event, the onset of the, of the rape event, or the mugging, when the brain, look, those stimuli impinge by sound, by light, by images in our brain, it goes right to the amygdala, it then goes right to the old vegas, and we give this response. It wasn't that we wanted to, to not fight, we could not, it was our last survival mechanism. So instead of feeling guilty about that, you want to really acknowledge, oh, this is what my body did to try to survive. And I did luckily, you know, and this sometimes happens when in date rape, especially because under the, the alcohol control is lost. Now the male starts being be pushy. I'm using a male, it doesn't always have to be, but it's in most cases. And all of a sudden, the woman feels overpowered and the male, and you're not saying no anymore. Notice, what does the male interpret that? Yes. Yes, no, you never said yes. You couldn't say yes because you were now giving the alarm, re- this, this deaf, you know, deaf fainting response. So this really says in the progression of sexual intimacy, you want to be sure the person truly can say yes. And if they're not saying anything, don't assume they're saying yes. They may be saying no, because they're totally paralyzed. You know, you could say paralyzed out of fear, but their body is starting to shrink down. In fact, pain will become less in that instance. You feel less, you're almost ready to die. And in fact, historically, physiologically, sometimes soldiers or people die out of fright And it's really what happens, this is death fainting response takes over. Your heart rate slows down so much, it stops. Now the question is what can you do about all that? Well, two, there are really, really one, I would say two, two ways, one, acknowledge to yourself, it happened, thank you body, it's the only response, it had nothing to do with my consciousness, my consciousness was not, it had nothing to do with will, this is my biological evolutionary heritage. Acknowledge that, that's one. Two, role rehearse new options. That's what the military does. That's what SWAT teams do. They, have, they know if you take a novel soldier, a novel policeman, when they go to, in those situations, some totally freeze, they get the same response. That fainting response. What do you do? You train them, you overtrain them. So finally, when the situation occurs, when you react, do you react automatically in a new way? It's the critical piece to do.
1: It goes back to the same theme of this. Role rehearsal. Yep.
0: Role rehearsal. What you want to do. And I would recommend for many of my young students, women, if you are worried, if you're afraid that something could happen to you, ask yourself. What can you do? Sometimes you can't do anything. Then you have to accept, let go, and say it happened. I became more mature. I gained skills and life experience. It may be a richer human being, okay? That happens a lot for kids who have been abused. There's nothing else they could have done. So you acknowledge and say, I survived it. Easily said, challenging to do. It's different than saying, oh, poor me, I've been damaged. No, you're not damaged. In fact, people who have had very difficult life experiences early on and overcame them, survive often illness much better. Hmm. In the early work with HIV, the most interesting findings, that's in the 80s by Solomon and Tomaszek. They showed that when they followed people who got HIV AIDS, at that time they all would be dying, right? But there are some people who are long-term survivors. One of the common characteristics, also with cancer patients, it works out, is that if you, as a child, had had a very difficult event, you know, which you overcame in a way, it became made you stronger, like a broken bone. It often doesn't break on the same place. Then the, then as if you get inoculated against hopelessness and helplessness, and so those patients would survive much longer. And it goes all the way back to the work by Richter at John Hopkins in the 1950s, I believe. There what you did, it's a really strange study. You take rats, you put the rats in a beaker, a tall beaker of water, okay? You dump them in there and now they start swimming. Well, what the rats do, they try to get to a, to a platform. There's no platform to get out. This is their first time experience. What happens is they swim for a little while and then they give up, truly. And what happens, they then drown or they die. If you may monitor them, they don't die of drowning, it works out. They die that their heart rate slows down and stops. Just like they gave the life-threatening response. This situation, first they swim because they think they can escape. Then they realize as they keep crawling against the glass walls, they can't get out. At that point, they give up. And when they give up, they don't drown, their heart rate starts slowing down and within four minutes they're dead. Now you do the same study again and you do something most interesting. The rat, you put the rat in the water and just as it gives up, does that make sense? You take a scoop and you lift it out. You give it the experience, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Now you repeat that a couple of times. And now you do the final study with with that rat you know, these are different group rats, right, obviously. Now you had, so you had one group of rats that had been saved a number of times at the last moment. Now you put them back and now you don't save them. They will swim for 24 hours.
1: Wow. They will
0: keep swimming till there's no more fat tissue, no more calories left for them to power their body. Wow. They, because what, they, what are they thinking? They have an image. The images. I'm going to be saved. It's not any different than knowing where you want to go to. And so the question is not where you are. Where you are is not where you were. You can learn from where you were. It may tell you where not to go again. Yeah. <laughs> but every experience is great in this experience. It doesn't tell you. But the more you can focus what where you want to go, what is your... What are your beliefs? What are the limits of your beliefs? If you you start looking at where you want to go, then you may get there. You may never get there. We don't know how far you can go. Most of us, however, put very strong limits into ourselves. I'm just like my Uncle Joe. You know, he's lousy in language. And so what happens? I put my own limit in there. And I do not allow small learning experiences because every time I interpret that as defeat. So in play and enjoy, ask not what, what was, ask where do you want to go.
1: Oh, I love this. Thank you, Dr. Pepper. That's, oh my gosh, you've given so much life wisdom and, and just in a, a thread throughout of the same practices.
0: That's my pleasure.
1: Thank you. We really, really appreciate all that you have shared. So thank you so much. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And I would love to continue the conversation with each of you over at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash Cosmos in you or our Twitter page. The Twitter handle also is Cosmos in you. And of course, at our website, Cosmos in Again, thank you so much for listening in. I'm so grateful to each of you to be able to share this shared passion and look forward to seeing you next time.